Welcome, everyone. Venerable Chodin is working hard to finish up the last edits on Volume 8 and uh, of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. Volume 8 is called Realizing the Profound View, and it's all about how to meditate on emptiness. So um, we're supporting her tonight by doing a review instead of having teachings, and um, look forward to that Volume 8 being published. So let's begin by setting our motivation for our time together tonight. We've had a, a Dharma reign of teachings in the last month with Geshe Dadol and also Geshe Yeshi Tabke. And um, I was reflecting on verse 11 from the 108 verses in praise of great compassion that Geshe Dadol commented on. Verse 11 says, All the Buddha's teachings, which are the nature of nonviolence, are elucidated by means of compassion. Thus, you, compassion, are the quality that marks the Dharma that makes the Dharma, the Dharma. And so in commenting on this verse, Geshe Dadal said that all the Buddhist teachings have the nature of non-harm or non-violence. When asked to define Dharma after rejecting what others had proposed, the great scholar Aryadeva said, ultimately, non-harm is the nature of Dharma. And when asked to give the essence of Buddha Dharma, His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said, when it comes to conduct, it is rooted in non-harm. And when it comes to the view, its identity is rooted in dependent arising. So in short, one way of thinking about the Dharma is non-harm. Dharma is not defined by how it looks from the outside, but depends on our motivation what's moving our mind. So whether we engage in physical, verbal, or mental action, for it to be dharma, it must be the nature of non-harm. And I found uh, this emphasis so inspiring. The whole dharma practice is rooted in compassion or non-harm. And, and it grows into our ability to help others skillfully. So if we truly want to help others that help is predicated on wishing to not harm and the various levels of great compassion. Therefore, it's you, compassion, who makes the Dharma the Dharma. And he went on to say, to fully realize the potential of non-harm relies on realizing emptiness. That's what leads to nirvana and full awakening. So for our Dharma study and practice to serve its purpose and to increase our genuine joy and happiness, and addressing the countless sources of dissatisfaction and suffering, we must persistently develop our compassion along with wisdom. So tonight, let's cultivate a sense of great compassion and a wish to attain full awakening as our motivation for uh, coming back to the first part of Volume 3 and doing some review. So right now, currently, uh, Venerable Chodron's teaching from this volume of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, Volume 3, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, 
Mark, there might be a, another copy on the bookshelf if you want to grab it. And we haven't done any reviews on this book because Venerable hasn't been traveling. <laughs> She's actually been here working hard on um, many of the volumes that are have been published and, and the next few that need to be published. And so tonight we'll begin reviewing Chapter 1 um, of Nirvana, Samsara, Nirvana, Buddha Nature. And Chapter 1 is called The Self, The Four Truths and Their 16 Attributes. So I thought to begin by creating some context for our study of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. You may recall that the Library of Wisdom and Compassion series was born out of Venerable Children's request to His Holiness in 1995 to write a short text on the Lam Rim that some of the Tibetan Lamas could use when they were teaching um, those who were serious about the Dharma. And I think rather than use the word Westerners, because what does that mean after all? Um, but maybe non-Tibetans, we could say, or non-Tibetan monastics, I think. Because even these books are going to be valuable for um, Tibetans, young Tibetans, who are interested in learning about the Dharma, but maybe, maybe not interested in ordaining and going through the monastic studies. I think it's also... Um, maybe too broad to say non-Asians, because I think there are a lot of Singaporeans who tune into these teachings and find them very relevant to their lives. So um, I think these, I would like to talk about how how I see the value of this series of texts from my, my own uh, point of view, having done some study. Um, so when, when Venerable made this request to His Holiness in 1995, His Holiness responded by saying that a larger book needed to be created first and that this book needed to be different, not just um, another Lam Rim tech, we text because we have a lot of excellent Lam Rim texts already avail available. So he didn't want to just repeat um, a standard Lam Rim text. Rather, he wanted it to contain material from the philosophical treatises so that readers like us could gain a deeper and more detailed understanding of the important points. So if you think about it, the monastics are exposed to a wide variety of classical treatises. And if you, if you also recall, the Lam Rim is actually a summary for people who have already done a great amount of study to go through the graduated path to awakening, drawing on a lot of the studies that they've already done. But for people like us who aren't going through the the traditional Geshe studies, well, how are we going to get that knowledge? And I think His Holiness is taking care of us um, through Venerable's prompting and, and request uh, to, to summarize and to bring the pith of some of those classical texts to our fingertips in these volumes. Um, so His Holiness also wanted this longer Lam Rim to contain material from the Pali Buddhist tradition to help students like us appreciate the Buddha's remarkable skill and versatility in instructing people with very diverse interests and aptitudes and dispositions. And this is, uh, goes hand in hand with his, one of his main goals in life, which is to reduce sectarianism, especially within uh, different Buddhist traditions. And then as editor and co-contributor to this series, Venerable Chodron has poured through countless teachings that His Holiness has given both to Asian and non-Asian audiences, and she's also brought her own 
study and questions to His Holiness and requested through interviews to clarify a lot of points that uh, we may find ourselves thinking at different points. Or we may think, wow, I never thought to think that. I never had that, that question, but what a great question. And now here it is. It's just clarified in these, uh, in these beautiful books. So I, I thought to just contrast this series with a traditional Lamrim outline. And so Virma uh, Lamsa has kindly put a basic Lamrim outline um, on Google for people to access if they like, and you can just follow along, because I'm sure many of you already carry this in your mind. One of the beauties of studying the Lamrim is that we can summarize and we can carry the outline with us so that we can think about it, we can reflect on it as we go through our day. And so that's partly what we're doing on Thursday mornings when we take teachings with um, Venerable Cadro, as well as teachings on the library series. We're trying to, we're, we're fleshing out the Lamrim outline, but it's good to also bring it back to a very pithy summary so that we can carry it with us. Um, so if we think about a, a traditional Lamrim outline and then look to see, well, how is the structure of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion the same? Where are some similarities and where are the differences? And really pay attention and tune into the differences as well as the similarities. So if we think about the Lam Rim, we, we begin with the initial scope. And uh, from the traditional Tibetan approach, then the first thing they begin talking about is how to rely on the spiritual teacher. And for many Westerners who are new to Buddhism, that's like, whoa, wait a minute, that's I'm not ready to take a teacher yet. And I have so many misconceptions about that, I don't even know where to begin. And that's, that can be scary, can it, when you're faced with um, some fears about, you know, here's someone you're going to really trust and develop this lifelong or maybe lifelong relationship with. So we begin by relying on the spiritual teacher who's going to teach us the entire path. And then when they begin with the instruction, it begins with the preciousness of our life so that we can see what conducive circumstances we have right now so that we take advantage of them. But the very next topic, of course, is death and impermanence. We won't have this precious opportunity that we enjoy right now, and we probably take for granted, take, 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 take advantage of it, or take it for granted. But, you know, death and impermanence helps us to... Uh, overcome the, the view of grasping at ourselves as permanent, at least to begin that process. Also, in that um, initial scope, we, we look at, well, all traditions say that something happens after death. So what does the Buddhist tradition say? And so the Buddhist tradition talks about lower rebirths, upper rebirths, rebirths, a continuity of mind, even though the body, we, we separate the mind separates from the body, but there's a continuity that goes from life to life. So then we start, at least in the initial scope, we look at, well, what are these lower rebirths like? And that's also a difficult topic for many non-Tibetans. <laughs> and once we get an idea of lower rebirths and the, the potential of suffering experiences, then we, you know, the idea is that one would look for a refuge. So then the topic of refuge is taught. That's also a challenging topic for many non-Tibetans all of a sudden talking about the qualities of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha right off the bat. And then what is it that the refuge, uh, our refuges would, would teach us to help us uh, 
accomplish the aims of the initial scope, which is to get a good rebirth or continuity of rebirth so that we can continue progressing, that would be to learn about karma. So that's, that's the initial scope, just in a nutshell. Hopefully for some of you, that's just review and you, you can rattle that off yourself. And for others, maybe you're new to this. And um, this can give you a good outline or a good template for thinking about these are the things that we need to reflect on and meditate on, become very, very familiar with, so that we are actually taking responsibility to create causes for our good rebirth. Then in the middle scope, um, which is where this volume falls, uh, comes in, is uh, we, we talk about the Four Noble Truths, and particularly highlighting the truth of suffering, which we have spent many months on now, <laughs> truth of suffering and the truth of origin of suffering. The first two truths, why do we uh, spend so much time on those? Because by really reflecting on our situation, how we're a subject and we don't really have much control. We like to think we have control, but we don't have much control over the karma and affliction that's afflictions that are running our a lot of our life. And so as we reflect on those two first noble truths, that can bring about, uh, in, with sincere meditation and reflection, sincere renunciation or determination to overcome samsara. And then... Um, the, the the last two truths are included there too, true cessation and true paths. But typically in a Lam Rim text, the goal is to get practitioners to the Mahayana path and so they don't spend much time on true cessations or true paths. But the main focus on true suffering and true origin. Also in the middle scope, we talk about the 12 links, which we are just about to get to, which I can't wait. I'm sure Venerable has asked many um, pertinent questions for clarification because the 12 links on one hand we can probably rattle off some of us can rattle off what the 12 links are and how you can go through them in two lives or three lives and um, what are projecting causes what are projected results etc but um, I think really reflecting on these these 12 links deeply and applying it to ourselves that can bring about a real sense of renunciation because we come to the point of understanding that we are a self-perpetuating suffering machine. <laughs> That's really what it's, it's designed to wake us up, to, to see where we are, what our conditions are actually like. So the, the two, first two truths and the 12 links helps us to develop the renunciation that we need. And then how do we overcome our situation in samsara it is typically uh, taught uh, in the, the three higher trainings there in the middle scope. So ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And when a person is uh, focused on attaining personal liberation, these are the things that they would practice intently to bring that about. But like I said, all Lam Rim texts are really aimed at Mahayana practitioners, and so there's a great scope. And so the, the initial scope, middle scope, are considered practices shared in common with beings who might just be aiming for a good rebirth or just aiming for liberation. So in the great scope, that's where we find, instead of renunciation as the motivation, we find bodhicitta. And so the teachings on the different methods for developing bodhicitta. And then the six perfections, once a person has developed bodhicitta. And again, in the six perfections, we find ethics, concentration, and wisdom, along with patience and joyous effort and um, generosity.
And then there's a little mention of Tantra there at the end of the Lam Rim. So this is, these are the practices specifically for people who are aiming for full awakening. Okay, so that's, I just wanted to give a cursory overview. Now let's take a look to see what's the library of wisdom and compassion presenting that's the same and what's the difference. So as we've gone through volume one and two and three, we, we can at least look at the, the initial and middle scope. So maybe some of you have attended all the teachings. Some of you have. And so you might remember that approaching the Buddhist path, volume one, was really a lot of historical background about how Buddhism spread from India and uh, also talked a lot about the systematic approach to sp the spiritual path. And um, a lot of Buddhist ideas in contrast to contemporary issues. So it's really creating a good context for the non-Tibetan Geshe studies uh, practitioner to begin to engage. Um, so maybe not a lot of hard and fast facts there, but a lot of really good, rich information for practitioners like us who are wanting to progress along the path and also bring along all the science that we've studied in our lives and all the psychology that we've modern psychology we've been exposed to, um, and all the modern medicine and, and things like this. So then in volume two, the foundation of Buddhist practice, it started off with talking, uh, teaching a lot about non-deceptive knowledge. These are the kind of minds that we are wanting to develop along the path, no matter what the topic is, whether it's um, precious human rebirth or uh, karma, lower realms, whatever the case may be, refuge. We're wanting to develop these non-deceptive states of mind. And this is part of the Geshe studies. It's called low rig or mind and awareness, where we really look into what are the seven main types of awareness that, that a person would progress through to getting to um, a direct perception, a non-conceptual direct perception, especially of emptiness, right? That's our, we need emptiness to purify our minds. And so we started off talking about, His Holiness started off talking about non-deceptive knowledge. Um, then we did talk a little bit about rebirth. This is something Tibetans don't need to talk about much, but we do. I mean, how many of you grew up really having a strong conviction or teachings about rebirth and the fact that uh, something goes from life to life? Yes, we talk about, many of us grew up talking about heaven and hell, uh, or learning about those kind of concepts in a Christian context. Um, but rebirth, mm, reincarnation, past and future lives, that's, that's challenging. So there was a section uh, that uh, His Holiness brought in to help us understand that. Then there's a section on relying on the spiritual mentor. That's similar to what we find in the traditional, at least the topic is similar. But the presentation was very different, if you recall. And how fortunate we are that His Holiness has given very clear instructions for us about what it means to rely on a spiritual teacher and the different levels of spiritual teachers that we can rely on. Um, because there's a lot of mm, different points of view. Let's <laughs> put it that way. I was going to say misinformation, but I, that's not quite accurate. Um, there are different points of view about what it means to rely on a spiritual teacher. And it depends on the... Uh, the development of the student, where we are in our practice, as well as the qualities of the teacher, those two things are going to make a big difference and, and determine what kind of relationship we're going to have 
uh, with a spiritual teacher. So that's um, laid out very clearly in that section on how to rely on a spiritual teacher. And although people who are new to Buddhism may not be ready to take a teacher right off the bat, it's a good idea to know what we're looking for when we get to that point. Um, it's amazing how how gullible, well, how naive, I think, we as Westerners are. We, we're too quick to take initiations with people. We don't even know who these teachers or these lamas are. Um, so it, it's I, I found that section very helpful. There's a section on structuring the meditation session. That's also found in the initial scope of the Lam Rim. Precious Human Rebirth, the, the how to make the most of this precious life that we have right now, that's similar. And then there was a very detailed section on karma, more detailed than I've ever seen in a Lam Rim text, and asking a lot of the questions that we as um, logical, scientifically-based um, non-Tibetans would, would think about and ask questions. Um, so I have great appreciation for Venerable and all the years that she has collected the questions that she and some of her uh, fellow practitioners have come up with, um, little seem, seemingly discrepancies or contradictions that they found in the teachings, especially around this very um, important topic of karma, and uh, the clarity with which His Holiness lays out um, a lot of the topics that, that are found in that section. So all of these topics help us to use our lives wisely, this is from the book. These topics help us to use our lives wisely and make good ethical decisions so that our deaths, deaths are free of regret and fear. They also help us to create causes for fortunate rebirths so that we will continue to have the conducive circumstances to continue our spiritual practice. So they're very important to us. So already we can see that from, the, from that outline that this long rim will be very different. We won't actually have an outline for a while you know, a new outline that we can memorize and use as something we put in our mental pocket to carry with us so that we um, we have the Lam Rim at our fingertips, the graduated path to enlightenment at our fingertips. Now, the subject of refuge was not included in Volume 2 or Volume 3, but it's coming in Volume 4. Um, and actually, there's a precursor at the end of Volume 3 when we talk about Buddha nature. So again, um, His Holiness gave Venerable Chodron uh, creative license to arrange things in a way that would make sense for a non-Tibetan Geshe Studies audience, and that's what she's done. And uh, so again, we, we can cultivate our gratitude and our appreciation for, uh, for, for what she has done over the years. She's been working on this for, what, 25, maybe 30 years at this point. Okay, and then here we are in Volume 3, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. And so, again, it includes topics commonly found in the middle scope, but they are tailored. Have you noticed they're tailored for a non-Tibetan Geshe study audience like us? And I think that we are so fortunate that we're getting teachings, commentary, on this new Lam Rim, specifically for uh, this audience, from one of the co-authors and editor herself. <laughs> so pinch yourself, okay? This is, pay attention, this is important. Um, we're not just uh, sitting through dry, rote, rehashed material um, that was written hundreds of years ago. 
um, yes, the content is the same, but the presentation is very fresh and it's very uh, tailored for, for us at this time of our lives. So Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature includes the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths in detail, especially as I said, true suffering and true origin. And again, with um, maybe different kinds of examples than you find in the, lam, the, the traditional Lamrims that are more applicable to our day and age. So true suffering, um, true, or true dukkha, we should, I should say. This is Venerable's uh, preferred translation. So we talked about the three realms. We also had a chance to look at the 33 classes of beings in the form and formless realms. I've never seen that list so clearly laid out before. Um, I think it comes from Abhidharma. Um, so that was a nice bonus in that section. And then um, Asanga's 10 points of um, true dukkha. I think that comes from the Pali tradition. So we've, we've had these interspersed uh, teachings from the Pali tradition as well. And Venerable reminds us that reflecting on these enumerations and descriptions of true dukkha, um, she reminds us to apply them to our own lives and observe them in the experience of others. And that is so crucial for our making this teaching come alive to actually get the transformation that we're looking for. So true dukkha and then true origins. There was the explanation of the 10 root afflictions in great detail and more detail than you find in a traditional Lam Rim. And also there was uh, uh, an explanation of the 20 secondary afflictions. Again, that's from the low rig studies. Um, not only is there mind and awareness, but mind and awareness includes the seven types of awareness, but also mind and mental factors. And then um, afflictions and karma, their seeds and late seeds, they're having ceased. Now, again, these were very uh, uh, fresh presentations of some very subtle aspects of karma that I haven't seen in any other text, let alone a Lamrim text. Uh, so again, we have Venerable to thank for um, all the interviews and the questions that she asked His Holiness. That we get to look forward to the 12 links that are coming up later this year, assuming. Uh, and then the higher, three higher trainings, they're, they're, they're not in volume three. They'll, they'll be covered in volume four after the explanation of refuge. Um, this book also includes a section on mind and its potential, which again, I, I don't remember, I don't see that in a, in a traditional Lam Rim text. Um, you know, the mind and its potential is the basis for liberation, for full awakening. And then the, books, the book ends with a, a detailed section on Buddha nature, a summary of Maitreya's treatise called Sublime Continuum, which is not typically included in the Lam Rim at all. That's, that's a separate um, study, area of study. So again, this series is taught with a non-Tibetan audience in mind. So again, I'm sharing all this to remind us just how fortunate we are to be under the care and guidance of His Holiness, and all, as well as venerable children. And, and as I said, we're particularly fortunate to be receiving these teachings from the co-author and editor herself, the one who asked His Holiness all these questions and point, got points of clarification. So I think it's good to remember that, um, to not take her for granted, uh, to not take these teachings for granted, 
Um, but to keep going through the teachings again and again and again, like we are going to begin doing tonight um, with the, the reviews. And let's take responsibility not just to show up like a passive sponge, you know, just tuning in online with your feet kicked up and sipping on a cup of tea or something, but really engage with this material as if your hair was on fire. <laughs> you know, that's that's what advised in the traditional Lamrim. So we take these teachings to heart. Um, the more we can uh, strip away all the misconceptions that keep us from actually understanding what our situation is in samsara, the more we want to take these teachings to heart. Um, I've shared this story before, but I, I was at a teaching one time with His Holiness. I think it was in Sydney or, or Melbourne, I don't remember. But His Holiness came on the stage and he looked around the audience, as he does. There were probably three or 4,000 people in the room, but he looked around the room with his omniscient mind and he said, I see many old friends in the audience. Again, he had been there the year, he was coming every two years to Australia for a period of like 10 years. So he had been there two years before. He said, I see many old friends here today. I'm curious, is your mind very different from the last time we met? (laughs) I was put on the spot. Um, So let that sink in. Someone like His Holiness wants us to get transformation. Venerable Chodin has made it clear she wants us to transform our minds. That's why she teaches the way she teaches. Um, We're not just becoming talking heads about the Dharma, um, not just trying to get intellectual study, but actually working for, working hard for transformation. So our responsibility is to show up for these teachings with a sincere motivation and a sincere attitude after the teachings to go back through them, to review them, to try to apply them to our own life experience, to see them in others, to see them in everything around us. That's how we get the best benefit of of these teachings. Um, So we need to remember that from time to time and and, um, rouse ourselves. We all, I think, succumb to laziness from time to time. And uh, we need to encourage ourselves and each other. Okay, so that was a very long preamble, but I I felt like it was important, um, and I I hope it was a benefit. (laughs) So I'd like to begin by reading something from the preface that I found quite interesting. So Venerable Children wrote the preface, and she said, while ostensibly this volume is about samsara nirvana, It is actually about our minds, our minds that are sometimes tumultuous and at other times peaceful. Although our minds are always with us and are the basis of designation of the person, I, our minds remain a mystery to us. How can it be both the base for the extreme dukkha of samsara and the incredible bliss and fulfillment of nirvana? Knowledge of the two types of Buddha nature answer this question. One is the naturally abiding Buddha nature, the emptiness of inherent existence of our minds, which has always been and will always be the ultimate nature of our minds. The second is the transforming Buddha nature, the mind whose continuity goes on to awakening, but at present is not yet freed from defilements. So both the ultimate nature of the mind and conventional nature of the mind that can transform. 
The mind serves as the basis for the emptiness that is the naturally abiding Buddha nature. These two types of Buddha nature are already present within us. The afflictions are not embedded in our minds. Our minds are obscured by defilements but are not the nature of defilements. These obscuring factors can be forever eliminated by applying suitable antidotes. She goes on to say, This Buddha nature is an indelible part of each one of us. Each sentient being has it. So no matter how low or how low we or others may fall as a result of our afflictions, and afflictions and suffering are not our nature. That's powerful. We are worthwhile beings who deserve happiness. Our Buddha nature can never be lost, and we do not need to prove ourselves to anyone. The unpurified mind is samsara. The purified mind is the basis of nirvana. All that is needed is our confidence and sincere effort to follow the path, purify our Buddha nature, and cultivate awakened qualities. These are the topics of the present volume. So I, I thought that was a, uh, a tantalizing introduction. His Holiness begins this section with three questions that were asked at an interfaith gathering. Do you remember what they are? He, the first one is, is there a self? I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you all three and then we'll go through them. Is there a self? Is there a beginning of the self? And is there an end of the self? So you might wonder, well, why are they starting out this way? We're about to start talking about samsara and nirvana. So although we already covered um, a little bit about the five aggregates in volume two, talking about what is the person, what is the basis of the person? Um, here's another way to think about the self, to investigate the self. Is there a self? Does the self have a beginning? Does the self have an end? So, except for Buddhists, all other traditions accept an independent self. Isn't that interesting? A permanent Atman or soul that owns or possesses the body and mind and takes rebirth. So I think that's true with Christianity. We might have to check other traditions just to prove for ourselves that that's true. So uh, they gave the example, for instance, at the time I was born, when we say that, at the time I was born, we feel that there was a self that was born that is the same self that exists today. Or I was thinking of another example. We can all think of the time when we came to the Abbey. Remember when you came to the Abbey? For some of you, it was many years ago. For some of you, it wasn't quite so long ago. But think of that self that came to the Abbey. Doesn't it feel like the same self that's here today? <laughs> well, some things have changed, for sure. <laughs> but isn't, that, isn't there like an enduring sense of I that came to the Abbey and is still here? Check for yourself. See, how, see if it's true. Or people come to visit the Abbey and they say, oh, oh, when I was here last time, that building wasn't here. And probably they're thinking about themselves as this continuity, this enduring self. Now, probably if, they, if you check, they would say, they would have to admit that they're thinking of them, some part of themselves as being permanent, as enduring, as ongoing. Okay, so but sure, there's a continuity of the self. But although we know the body and the mind change, we have evidence, right, Venerable? We have evidence that we've changed. <laughs> We still have a sense of an enduring self, even after many years of study and practice of Buddhism. <laughs> so 
this is something that we really need to look into to challenge, to uh, investigate. How does the self exist? Is there a self? What kind of self is there? Um, in contrast, all Buddhist schools agree that just like a chariot is merely designated on its basis of wheels, axle, and seat, likewise the self is merely designated on the body and the mind. The self exists, but not independent of the body and the mind. Therefore, Buddhists assert selflessness, the lack of, of a permanent independent self or soul. So while there's selflessness, there also is a self that is, is asserted. But as Venable um, cautions us, we very easily say, but they, wait, wait, there's a conventional self. Yes, there's not an ultimate self, but there's a conventional self. But if we're not careful, we just assign the ultimate self to the conventional self, you know, in this enduring permanent uh, type of, of uh, sense of ourselves. So this question invites us to spend some time thinking about how we, how the self exists. And um, so His Holiness says, when we look deeply into the nature of the five aggregates, we see that they are simply momentarily changing processes that are in a constant flux. Tell me, when you look in the mirror, is that what you see? Is that how you think of yourself or others? Oh, there's so-and-so again. They're the same. <laughs> so uh, this momentarily changing process, processes that are in constant flux, they arise and pass away without interruption, giving rise to the next moment in the same continuum. So there is a lot of detailed explanation about cause and effect, which can be very interesting to that scientific aspect of our mind. But probably it's not one that we normally think about. We don't apply that kind of scientific investigation to ourselves like we might to something else, like buying a car (laughs) or a new phone. Okay, so we can, to think about this question further, we can revisit the explanation about the five aggregates. We can also do meditation on the 32 aspects of the body found in the mindfulness of the body uh, section in the four establishments of mindfulness. You know, is there a self? Look through all the different parts of the body. Is the head hair the body? Is the body hair the body? How about the nails or the teeth? Or the skin, etc. And what's what's interesting, I find, is is to uh, to actually, as we'll get into the aspects of the uh, the first noble truth, true suffering, true dukkha is to go through those 32 aspects of the body and and look at, like, for instance, thinking about the impermanence of the hair, the the hair on the head. And for those of us who shave every couple of weeks, you know, you you really have a sense of the impermanence of your hair. When I was a layperson, I wasn't aware of that so much. Yeah, I had to go to the the salon every couple of months to get an inch cut off or so, but I didn't have that kind of awareness that I do looking in the mirror and seeing, oh, it's time to shave. So head hair, body hair, nails. You know, our nails are constantly changing. It's fascinating to think about. There's nothing static in this body. But to say that doesn't have the import as doing your own meditation to see, oh yeah, is there anything within this continuum of body that's not constantly changing? And, and to let that shake you at your core 
it can challenge that, that unconscious grasping at permanence that we all carry. So nails, teeth. I will confess, after I got braces, like within a week, I could see that my teeth were shifting, and I was surprised. Why, is I, why am I surprised? Because I'm grasping at my teeth, or at least the bones, you know, the, the jawbone to be permanent. <laughs> I bet we all have our own experiences of that. Maybe we're surprised when we start losing weight when we don't eat at night or, um, I don't know, whatever. You probably have your own experiences of that where you're just kind of shocked. You know, like, oh, of course, I'm changing. Uh, skin, you know, in the wintertime when you start wearing long johns, you, you really become aware of how impermanent the skin is. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit too graphic. Okay. <laughs> Well, usually our clothes are very loose-fitting, so you put on tight-fitting clothes and it rubs against the skin. You see the skin is sloughing all the time. Um, and then the muscles, you know. In the summer, our muscles are, we're out in the forest, we're working with wood, etc., and the muscles grow. In the winter, when we're sitting during retreat, the muscles wane. Uh, they're constantly changing. The bones are constantly changing. That's a little harder to experience directly, but knowing what we know about the bones, they're constantly um replenishing and re- revitalizing, rejuvenating, uh, creating red blood cells, um, breaking down, building up um, the kidneys, constantly filtering out um, whatever they do. <laughs> 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 filtering something. What do they filter? The blood or the... No. They, yeah, the blood? Okay. The kidneys. What do the kidneys filter? Our nurse isn't here tonight. The liquids in the body. Thank you. Oh, Yeah. The blood, okay, the kidneys filtering out um, pollutants in the blood. And uh, then thinking about the heart. This is really fascinating. Put your hand on your heart and realize the heart is never still. Be still, my heart. I don't know why someone would say that. That means you're dead. (laughs) But Maybe it's a different kind of heart. Um, But to think about the four chambers of the heart are working hard for us every day. Thank you, heart. Keep doing it. <laughs> you know, um, the liver, very silently doing more of that filtering, right? Um, thank you, liver. The, the diaphragm um, constantly helping us to breathe. Um, the spleen storing up red blood cells. And the lungs constantly taking in fresh oxygen to, to uh, disseminate throughout our bodies. So to, to really go through the body and even to Google all these different body parts and to find out what they do, you know, like you can even find pictures of cameras that go through the stomach and you can see what the stomach is like a muscle and it's constantly doing this kind of stuff. I never knew that before. So it's very interesting to learn more about our body and to get a sense of how it's a constantly changing momentary um, thing. We think of ourselves as a noun, but we're a verb. <laughs> so we have to challenge those uh, thoughts. So that 32 aspects of the body, you can get a lot of mileage out of that. Also thinking about how each part of each of those 32 parts are suffering and how each of those 32 parts lack a self. Um, another way to explore this question is the Vipassana meditations. You know, when you're really focusing more on the mind and just seeing how fluid the mind is and also how when the mind becomes more quiet, more concentrated, the body changes too making that connection. So there are many different methods um, for meditating on the mind, like shamatha or clarity of the nature of the mind. All of these can help illuminate 
the constantly changing body and mind that makes up the self. So maybe you have other methods that you use to investigate the self. Or any any of them come to mind right off the top of your head? I've mentioned several of them that you probably use. What's that? Yeah. Does the self exist? How does the self exist? Does the self exist? I think it's pretty obvious there is a self that's even investigating. Does the self exist? But how? Then might be the next question. So under how, then we look at the second question. I know this is probably more detailed than... Anyway, this is what I'm doing. Is there a beginning of the self? (laughs) Is there a beginning of the self? This is another fascinating question. We might say, well, of course, I was born. I was born at a particular time. As if we weren't present before that moment, you know, when the doctor pulled us out. Beginninglessness is an uncomfortable concept to us, isn't it? Beginningless. Infinity. That's hard on the mind to think about. Most of us. (laughs) Maybe not everyone. So some religions talk about an external creator. God. That doesn't depend on causes and conditions. I don't remember learning that as a Catholic, but that seems to come up a lot, that, that God is a creator, no one created God. I guess, yeah, that part I can remember. And His Holiness is so careful to make the point that thinking that God created a person can foster a feeling of being close to God and a willingness to follow God's advice. You know, No problem with that. If it helps you develop good qualities and be a better human being, that's wonderful. But for Buddhists, since the self is designated, merely designated on the body and mind, primarily the mind, then our question is, does the mind have a beginning? The mind is impermanent. So here, another detailed explanation of what is the mind? How how does it function? The mind is impermanent. All impermanent things change moment to moment. We can understand how this moment of mind, this moment of mind, influences the next moment of mind. What we're doing with our mind now will influence what we dream about tonight, what we think about when we wake up in the morning. So we can make that connection. Although it's hard, I think it's harder to understand this moment of mind as a cause, a substantial cause for the next moment of mind. That's hard. But we can trace back and see how this moment of mind is a product It's been influenced by the previous moment of the mind. That was influenced by the previous moment of the mind. And just keep going back and back and back and back, all the way to the moment of what we call birth, all the way back into the womb. And eventually we'd get to the first moment of mind of this life. And then we ask the question, well, where did that mind come from? That's a very important meditation and question for us to look at. And since mind in the Buddhist tradition is presented as non-material, it's not, it's not matter, it's non-material, it's different from the brain. And knowing that a cause for something must, or a result, has to have a compatible cause. It can't be something that's completely different. It's not like our parents gave us part of their mind. And it's not like our mind came from our body or it came from the sperm and the egg. So where did it come from? The logical conclusion for Buddhists is that it came from a previous moment of mind. Through deep accustomation, right? As we've been learning in the Pramanavartika.
So those of you who've done this meditation over some time, you may have found some conviction, some level of conviction about the mind being beginningless and being okay with that as a basis for identifying you know, with the I, the self. Um, no, I want to ask a question. <laughs> those of you who have done this meditation over time, have you found some level of conviction about the mind being beginningless? Have you found some experience? Yeah. Okay, so it's possible. And does it help to think about a coarse self? What is it? the terms that Venerable use? A, a general self and a specific self. So the specific self is the self labeled on the aggregates of this lifetime, the body and the coarse minds of this life. But then there's more, a more general self. That's the mere eye that is merely designated on this continuity of mind that goes from life to life. So that mind can be traced back beginningsly, because just like we can trace back every moment of this life, we can also do that to the previous life, and the life before that one, the life before that one, etc. So infinity can, can help. Thinking about infinity, thinking about beginningless, and expanding our mind to that um, can be quite helpful. And then is there an end to the self? I know some materialists who say there is an end to the self. I have some relatives who think after this life, zip, that's it. Just finish. Christians say the soul hangs around till judgment day, at least some Christians. Not sure what happens after that, but... One of the lower tenant schools, Buddhist tenant schools, says that when an arhat passes away, attains what, what's called nirvana without remainder, their mind ceases. That's just a, a small part of Buddhist tenant holders. But there are difficulties with that position, as His Holiness points out in the book. He says that most Buddhists say that there is nothing that can eradicate the mind stream, the continuity of the mind. There's nothing that can eradicate our mind. There's no antidote to the mind in general. There are antidotes to our afflictions. Wisdom realizing emptiness uh, puts an end to afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations, but not the mind itself, not the clear and knowing nature of the mind. And so for this reason, then he got very specific at this point and said, most mind-only proponents and all the middle-way proponents say that after a person attains Pari-nirvana, the continuum of the purified aggregates remain. So an arhat's mind remains, a Buddha's mind remains. That came up in Pramanavartika as well. So we talk about the four Buddha bodies, um, the, the truth body of the Buddha, and the nature truth body, and then the form bodies. The form bodies come and go, but the, the continuity of the mind continues endlessly. So these are interesting questions for our ongoing reflections on the self and how the self exists and how that self experiences samsara and nirvana. That's why, it's, that's why it's coming up here at the beginning of this chapter because we're about to talk about our situation in samsara and the potential to be free of samsara. I find it interesting that there, there is not a hard and fast definition for samsara. There are many definitions in the Buddhist tradition, but I have not seen one for samsara. I've seen descriptions, and there's one in our text that says, samsara means to be reborn 
with karmically conditioned aggregates. And uh, it, it says specifically, it is our five contaminated appropriated aggregates. Contaminated by self-grasping and appropriated, meaning pr- being propelled by karma and afflictions. So we'll get into that with the 12 links. Really learning how it is that our mind is propelled into rebirth after rebirth uh, due to karma and afflictions. But often we say, I am in samsara as if it's a place, right? Like, isn't this samsara? I live in samsara. <laughs> Here we are in samsara. But each one of us has our own unique samsara. Each one of us is our own unique samsara. And each one of us are responsible for overcoming our own unique samsara. Liberation, it says, is freedom from bondage of rebirth with the contaminated or polluted aggregates propelled by karma and mental afflictions. And liberation comes about by completely ceasing the ignorance and karma that causes cyclic existence. So to bring about liberation, I think, first of all, we have to have a lot of understanding of what are the benefits of liberation. Because it seems like we're going to have to give up a lot. (laughs) So we better know what we're going to. Like, what would a liberated mind be like? What would a liberated experience be like? It's hard to even imagine. I've heard Venerable ask us from time to time, just imagine never having anger again. That can give us a small inkling of what a liberated mind would be like. Never knowing with confidence you'd never get angry again. I would like that, (laughs) wouldn't you? Never to be jealous again, never to feel pride or resentment or agitation, attachment. Never to have that disturbance in the mind, but to have a continuously blissful, peaceful experience of mind. Some people think that would be boring. I'm willing to bet. (laughs) I'm willing to risk experiencing that. Yeah, often people say, without suffering, you don't know the opposite of suffering. No. (laughs) I'm willing to gamble on that one. So it's to bring about liberation, we need to renounce dukkha or suffering and dissatisfaction, to turn away, to turn away from the pleasures of cyclic existence. Why? Because they are not actually happiness. This is challenging, and as we'll see um, when we continue with the reviews and we go into true dukkha or true suffering, and we look at the three kinds of suffering. You know, that suffering of change is really challenging for us because we, we so easily you know, grasp after the, the appearance of something holding happiness. And if I only had that thing or that experience or that opportunity, that person, then I would have that happiness. So we have to work very hard to convince ourselves that contaminated happiness is, is suffering. <laughs> contaminated happiness is suffering. That could be a mantra. Contaminated happiness suffering. Contaminated happiness suffering. Contaminated happiness suffering. Um, because it's going to take a very long time to convince ourselves. We've grasped so much at contaminated objects as pleasurable that we're totally convinced. But 
Contaminated happiness is suffering. It's grade F happiness. It doesn't bring lasting happiness. It, it's still disturbing for our mind. Why? Because as soon as we get something pleasurable, we're afraid we're going to lose it, or we want more, we want better. There's a disturbance naturally in the mind. There's never contentment. There's always dissatisfaction. So we need to renounce dukkha, or suffering and dissatisfaction, turning away from the pleasures, and also at the same time develop this mind intent on liberation. So uh, the, this chapter, there's a venerable and holiness say, renunciation does not mean relinquishing happiness. It's the aspiration for liberation. It is the aspiration for liberation, the determination to seek a higher and more enduring happiness than samsara can possibly offer. So again, um, just a little story that had a deep impact on me and some of you have heard it before. But I, when I lived in Australia, I met a woman who um, was there to do some graduate work. She was from Burma or Myanmar. Myanmar? Myanmar. Um, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Not Myanmar. She was from Bhutan. Yeah. And she had such a beautiful peacefulness about her. And we were talking one day and she said, I really try to live my life um, in accordance with the Four Noble Truths. And when I heard her say that, it really struck me. And so immediately I thought, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> and then I had to laugh at myself because this woman was someone, I, I, her family was Buddhist from day one. You know, She grew up in a Buddhist environment. She was steeped in Buddhism. She'd had many teachings and deep experiences that, um, you know, I'm still aspiring for. And that really touched me, like, I, I want to have that aspiration every day to wake up and think, I want to live my life today uh, in accordance with the Four Noble Truths. That's hard. But that might be an interesting investigation. What stops us from living our lives in accordance with the Four Noble Truths? They make perfect sense, don't they? There's suffering, there's dukkha, there's a cause of dukkha. Yes, I can stop the dukkha. Here's the path how to do it. It's very straightforward in some ways. And yet, um, how is it that we can live our lives in accordance with the Four Noble Truths? What would that look like even? What would we have to let go of? Uh, what would we have to bring into our lives? How would we spend our time, energy, and resources differently if we were really living in accordance with the Four Noble Truths? It's something I want to think a lot more about. So maybe that's enough, enough for one night. I really spend a lot of time just on those three questions, but I thought they were very important. I actually heard His Holiness give teachings on these three questions, and they, I remember them having a deep impact on my mind. Any comments about anything that we've covered tonight? Or? I want to appreciate the overview, to actually see the entire, you know, to lay out the long rim and look at the contrasting with the way that this, these texts, these volumes are being laid out. It, the, it, 
it's, you know, it's so amazing that we're receiving these teachings and they're so detailed that to actually have this opportunity to step back and go, oh, look, this is the big picture that we've been traveling together. And then just as you're talking, thinking about how much of that have I assimilated into my way of thinking and, um, you know, and how much, just as you, you've brought some stuff up, I've, I've gone back and checked, oh, that's a section I want to look at again. So I, I appreciate the review um, and the big picture perspective. Good. I think this is the real benefit of doing reviews like this when Venerable's traveling or when she's busy so that it, it, it actually gives us a chance to stop and breathe <laughs> and take time to look back. Um, it's always beneficial for the one presenting and hopefully it's beneficial for the people listening too. Yeah, I really encourage you to go back and look at the headings. Just thumb through and look at the headings of all three volumes that we've covered up to up to where we are in the text now. And um, just appreciate the depth and the breadth of what we're learning. Yeah. Um, Venerable Damsho and then Venerable Lamso. Um, you were asking us how we work with this whole, working with a sense of a self, right? I've been doing something that's much coarser, just looking at the identities that I, that just feel so at a gut level real. I'm my parents' child. Like, what else could I be? <laughs> but then to think your parents are karma and afflictions, right? That's from the sutras. Remember when he uh -huh. told King Ajastashtru, right? Your father and mother are to be killed. <laughs> <It's> like, uh -huh. <gasps> yeah, karma and afflictions. That's what you are born from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this teaching is just helping me integrate that. It's like, yeah, thank you. That's yeah. that's dad and mom. <laughs> Work on it. Have a lamsa. You mentioned that doing um, lots of insight meditation um, changes your mind and then it, that affects your body. I'm curious um, your experience with that. Hmm. Um, maybe a few things that come to mind. The, the small experiences I've had with doing shamatha retreats, um, there's... there. There is a kind of blissfulness that happens in the body. Then those of you who've done Vipassana retreats, you know this. There, there is a way that, um, I mean, you move through very different experiences all in one session. There can be a lot of pain. There can be a lot of bliss. There can be more pain. Um, but I find that that in those times where I've done Vipassana retreats, uh, the body becomes much more workable. Uh, what else? Yeah, sitting doesn't, for me at least, uh, of course I was doing those mostly when I was younger. <laughs> so it might be a different experience now, but um, going through experiences of physical pain and then seeing like how that physical pain can just completely disappear into something more blissful. Like where did it go? And then it comes back, of course. Um, yeah, those are things that come off the top of my head. I think that when our... Um, actually, Dr. Alan Wallace talks about this too. Our, our body is so influenced and interconnected with our mind that the more we quiet our mind and heal our mind, the body naturally heals as well. So it can be very curative. He tells a story about um, an older woman, a retired woman who was um, doing four hours of shamatha every day 
and she had to stop getting together with her friends because all they talked about were their aches and her pains, and she was just like experiencing so, so much bliss in her body, she had nothing to talk about. You know, so there are possibilities like that. All right, so I don't know exactly what Venerable will have us doing in next week or the future, um, but hopefully we will have some opportunities to do more review on the 16 aspects, especially after we've just gone through them with uh, Geshe Tabke and the Pramana Bhartika. Maybe we can draw some of our, if we have time, <laughs> we can draw some of what we've gleaned from those teachings uh, into uh, what we find in this, this volume.